0: Welcome ladies and gentlemen. I'm Ted Hodgkinson. I look after the literature programme here at Southbank Centre. It is my great pleasure to introduce tonight's event. The first time that two world-renowned writers will share a stage together. They also happen to be avid readers of each other's work and they seem to be in very good company this evening. It promises to be an an insight into the creative process. And also a rare celestial alignment of two prodigiously imaginative universes. Please welcome Kazuo Ishiguro and David Mitchell. So, the evening has some sort of a structure. We've zoned it off uh, into subject areas that we think each other's work is rich in. The um, one we're about to enter is ghosts. Were you actually afraid of ghosts when you were young? Very much so. Actually, the first sustained narrative I ever remember hearing and keeping that I still have was actually a story that my brother told me. I was four, so he must have been seven. And it was a story about a boy called Dave who uh, wanted some extra pocket money. So he went to the graveyard, dug out his grandfather's liver and sold it to the butcher for a pound. Uh, It's a true story that this is the story that John told me. That night he he was asleep, the parents were asleep. He heard a sound downstairs and he heard the door being opened. He just heard his grandfather's voice saying, Dave, I'm in the hallway. And then the 10th step, Dave, I'm on the 10th step. And Dave kind of probably lost bladder control, shall we say, in my brother's rendition. And, and so it's Dave, I'm on the ninth, 8th, 7th, 2nd, 1st step. I probably did a big jump in the middle. Entered my bedroom, because we can stop pretending that this is a third person, it was me. Uh, this tells you a lot about my brother, actually, who's a lovely chap and he's here. But, and then it was, Dave... I want my liver. <laughs> and Dave's mum, drew the curtains, opened the morning, saw him and screamed because there he was lying in bed with... What kind of story? I was four. Uh, and my liver had been clawed out and instead put in the hole were the twirly whirlies and the blackjack and fruit salad chews that I'd spent the pound on. So... Most kids get a nice fairy story or something of, sort of the old Ladybird series, don't they? But, but, but I had that and, and it's haunted me ever since, no pun
1: intended. Well, I have um, to say about to that you. story, I mean, it's, a lot of it's horror, isn't it? The thing that, you know, like any other person, I've you know, been scared all through my life of the idea of some, some kind of horrible, kind of gory thing like that happening. Mm, mm. But it's a different quality of fear altogether about the supernatural. When you were talking about the voice, going, Dave, Dave, that to me was a different kind of eerie experience. I've always been much more scared of that. You know, the, the idea of seeing a ghost. That has frightened me. It's, it's a different kind of fear. You told me once that the first story you ever wrote, piece of fiction you ever wrote, was a ghost story. And, and me too. The first four things I ever published in my career... Short stories. They were all ghost stories. Can you feel this distinction between the fear of the supernatural as opposed to the having your liver ripped out? Or um, (laughs) I know which I'm really more afraid (laughs) of. (laughs) I think once it declares itself, once
0: it becomes a monster, once it becomes something that is potentially defeatable, once it loses that ectoplasmic, liminal, neither here nor there, once it loses that quality. Something more rational kicks in, even if it's an impossible monster. A ghost story has to sort of
1: do this high-wire act. For me, there is something about the energy that comes from a ghost story. There is something about that, that force uh, that comes from just combining a bunch of words together. You can produce this really strange reaction in people. Long after I stopped having a supernatural element in my, in my fiction... I still try to aspire to that kind of effect. You know, I want people to be haunted by whatever it is. While we're at, talking about childhood influences, I mean, uh, did you used to play imaginary games? Uh, so my earliest number one toy was
0: it was sort of wire animals with a thin layer of bendy foam, and they were called twisties or bendies or something, and you could bend them in certain positions and I used to make little superhero capes for them and spaceships out of t- tissue boxes it was my world and I had to be in control of it as I am with my novels and, and you, you made up sort of narratives and dramas long for them. ones mm. they lasted for days I had no friends as a child as you can imagine just and this, this imagine is when you're about ones. what
1: when 17 or something <laughs> <laughs> how about you Were you a child fantasist? I I was. I used to play imaginary games with other kids. Did they know they were in your imaginary (laughs) games (laughs) with their consent? (laughs) I was thinking about this. I don't know how normal it was. I I had a feeling it was normal. I mean, in the school playground, people, the default thing, unless you were definitely wanting to play football or something, you would actually play some sort of make-believe game. Yeah. And normally the, you would just kind of reenact a version of some favorite TV show. You know, yeah. the, the stories had to get made up. Kids were still playing war. So, apart from the fact that you know, people were divided between kind of Germans and, and, and the Brits or something, and I, I would always try and discourage them from having the, the, the Japs. You know, I'd say, no, no, let's, let's make it the Korean War, the First World War. <laughs> but but uh, there'll be kind of very elaborate scenarios that were conducted over, you know, like 40 minutes or something of a a lunch break. And the stories were being made up in collaboration. And then when I was just playing at home, I would play with two or three other local kids and we'll make up very elaborate stories. That certainly, you know, had something to do with my, you know, very early experiences of kind of making up Stories. Yeah. There were lots of sword fighting stuff as well because yeah, people like yeah, Robin yeah. Hood and things like. Yeah. And we had the woods near us, so people play things like Robin Hood or Zorro or stuff like this. You can wow. see how old I am. Yeah. You write fights. <laughs> I'm a relatively inexperienced um, writer of violent action, and in my last book, for the first time, I had to think. You know, how how do I write? You know, like like one to one combat, and you've done it often uh, over, over the years, but I mean. When you try and tackle kind of action scenes like that, or indeed you know, fight scenes like that, do you feel we're kind of second best to the cinema people?
0: I think it depends what the desired result is. It's a little bit like jump shocks in horror films. <coughs> when something unexpl- I, I don't think you can really do that on the page. Not in a way that actually causes a physical reaction. Yet, I find myself writing narratives that are leading up to them and need them. And would find it quite a tall order to do a narrative without any kind of a fight. You do do them, I think. But but your fight scenes are psychological or metaphorical or Chekhovian. Rather like Ghost. Once the first gun is fired, once the pistol goes off, it's kind of over. It's the pages and pages of leading up to it of... of it was all a mistake and a muddle, and both sides want to get out of it really, but they can't. And it's this sort of thing they've set in motion that they can't get out of now. It's a poker game that they can't afford
1: to walk away from. The psychological build-up before the moment of kind of impact. You're very good at the build-up to the actual active moment. I mean, often in your in your action sequences. I mean, it's, the build-up is actually very, very tense. Because you often have a situation where people are plotting to, be the, to invade somewhere. So they are the aggressors, of effectively, but it's a strange mixture of being on the defensive as well as being on the offensive, because they are doing something against all the odds. You know, In Jacob de that you know, they're invading a, what's going to be a very well-protected fortress, or at the end of the bone clocks, they're planning this, this battle where they, they may well be defeated. The the psychology, the the getting inside people's heads, I think is, is perhaps better or easier to do. In a way, it's everything but the exchange of blows is the interesting bit. The exchange of blows, it's there, it's factual, it's done. I do think you're peculiarly fearless as a writer of fiction. Do you ever have an idea and think, well, actually, that'd be great, but that setting is so alien to my own experience... Well, that genre is so alien to what I've done in the past. I mean, you know, I'll be an idiot to take it on. Because I get this feeling quite often. I I always wrestle with this. I have a great idea for a story or a novel. I'm I'm in this situation right now. and I can think of an ideal setting. But I think, well, who who am I? I I, I know nothing about that time and place. I'd have to do a, a huge amount of research, and then still I'll be not qualified. But then I'm encouraged by looking at people like you, you know, just fearlessly, perhaps recklessly, <laughs> perhaps ridiculously, just going, you know, <laughs> go you know, anywhere, <laughs> any, any genre. I say to myself, well, actually, he does all this, but I'm sure he has his moments too where he's, he backs off because um, he thinks, oh, this is, I can't take that on. You
0: know. Firstly, I'm English, so I have to thank you for the compliments that you smuggled through in that rather no, elegant question. No, but it's a genuine uh, question. But yeah, sure. Uh, there's a big subdivision in the middle of it between genre and material. Genre, no. I mean, with the exception of Fifty Shades of Grey, mummy porn. I, I'm actually attracted to genres that I haven't thought about or visited. You wrote your first three books up to Remains of the Day. I was living in Japan at the time. Then you brought out The Unconsoled. And it was such, such, and this arresting, what? You, you do the Chakovian short novels, then you have this utterly atypical to what had gone before book, this sort of glorious, long-anxiety dream, Germanic modernist mammoth. That licensed me to, well, if you're allowed to do it, then fine, uh, you're some, then you're some years older than me that gave me a license to say not do another cloud atlas even though that might have been good for short-term sales but to, what's the opposite book to cloud atlas i feel that the Unconsoled is the opposite book to the remains of the day and had read about how i was mr Ventriloquist, multi-narrative postmodern guy no like what's the opposite did this sort of short quiet one narrator very english book set that took place in one small tiny world and that was the point but then you did that again When We Were Orphans a a detective story that that you broke climbed out of and did something else with and then you brought out a novel which people in the more respectable end of the press were too polite to use the word but it was science fiction and then you've done it again most recently with The Buried Giant this omniveracity this desire to put a lot of clear blue water between your novels in terms of genre that's that's the genre stuff Mm. the material Mm. uh uh, i do feel more inhibitions um and you can always do it but you have to do it sideways need a certain arrogance and hubris that i feel that you lose as you age and maybe learn more about technique if I tried to write a novel wholly narrated by an American I now know I would be a microtone out and that microtone is worse than being 8 notes out being a whole octave out so you do it sideways you do a Brit who's lived in America for a long time you do a Canadian
1: <laughs> There's always a way around it but so in the past you have written from you have written American voices when yeah. I was younger uh, I wouldn't The last section of ghostwritten is is, is American yep. yeah in,
0: uh, it was, and I thought all you needed to do was soak up enough films and to make a list mm. of, of out the window instead of out of the window. You know, th- th- mm. there's, there's, there's sort
1: of. But little, I've never heard anyone complain American that, that, tells. that you know, it didn't sound American. But, but it's that fearlessness. Do you think you've lost some of that? I kind of battle with this. There's a, there's a part of me that's, that says, I have to go for it. You know, I can see this novel, or whatever it is, waiting to be written, I should have a go. If it requires this particular setting, I should have a go. Mm-hmm. I'll do whatever it takes to try and make it work. And it, it may not be authentic, but you know, I should try and find the courage. And, mm. You see, I have this list of ideas. I, I've been keeping a little notebook since 1981. You know, if I have anything that I think is ha- a halfway decent idea... By idea, I mean literally about like two or three lines. And it yeah. could be an idea for a setting. Mm. It could be an idea like a, cons- a concept or, you know... I write it down, and um, and there are some that I come back to again and again. And but I, I just think I can't. I'm just not qualified. Well, I don't quite dare. I don't come from that place. I just don't have the first-hand experience. Um, but then, I, as I say, I, I I read very convincing work by other people, and then I know that, that you know they. They were initially you know, as unqualified as I was. And so then, I, then I think, well, maybe I shouldn't back off. For instance, my last novel, The Berry Giant, in some ways I would have liked to have set it in a real place in contemporary history, like Bosnia during the Bosnian Wars. You know. I felt, I, I'm going to back off this because who am I to write about this crisis when so many people who, are, who lived through it are, are around. And, um, and I'm just using perhaps abusing contemporary history for my own ends there. I wouldn't call that a cop-out. I would call it very,
0: very sideways. Mm. They will see it, and it's okay as long as you really, really, really know your stuff, but you'd better really, really, really know your stuff, Mm. Uh, especially when it intersects with real tragedy. And you're making yourself very fair game and painting kind of hit me all over yourself uh, Mm. if you don't really know your stuff
1: so um, based in your personal lives how would your ghost look like right now if you had to describe them
0: if we were haunted by a ghost what would the ghost look like that's a sneaky way of asking something really personal about an ancient girlfriend isn't it Um, but myself aged 80
1: that's not very scary <laughs> if, you just think, oh, that's me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Would you? I mean, scare the crap out of me if I saw kind of my old me just walking up, just like walking up those steps behind you, going,
1: "Yeah, I guess that, that's a, a slightly disconcerting." But I mean, as I say, it doesn't. For me, it doesn't raise that very peculiar fear I was talking about. I do find ghosts of children quite scary. I, I, children, which I, children? Just any child, you know. I, like this I, as, as I explained child. to you I, I don't, before, I mean, I don't really care, you know, what... It's just the fact of their, you know, they're encroaching into your consciousness that I find really, really unsettling. And maybe because of the way I was brought up, you know, these kind of um, almost beautiful women ghosts. But they're not quite beautiful, they're very, very scary. My ghost will be like that. That just but, sounds like a goth
0: disco in Worcestershire in the (laughs) 1980s Worcestershire, we never got to Worcestershire why is Worcestershire in all of your books?
1: It's one of these kind of strange habits I have that when I there are a number of things I just find almost inadvertently creeping into everything I write and Worcestershire (laughs) is one of them when I need an English county of a certain sort I, I write down Worcestershire You've got quite a number of these ticks. I've noticed them, but we should, okay, we should yourself, take a question. I'd like to ask you both about um, how you conceive and structure the endings of your novels because it seems that, to me, that both of you are very, very strong on endings in completely different ways. David's novels seem to me to be so well structured and thought out that I kind of well, imagine you. that you conceive them years in advance altogether. you know. Um, and um, Kazuha's endings seem to me to be still beautiful but much more organic as if they kind of emerge from um, the writing of the novel um, and I just wondered, that might be completely wrong, how, how you think of them as, as you work I always have my ending before I start Really? Yeah, oh, that's I the don't. one thing I, yeah. I, I absolutely know I don't know all the actual details but I know absolutely the emotion I want to land on and I can't start a book until I do that Mine is actually much more organic and it comes from the process of the writing laughter um,
0: uh, no, I never know. I think of the narrative as a road journey through the alphabet, and I don't, want, I don't want to start from A, knowing anything after about W. So the X, Y, and the Z need to be murky for me still, and I'll find them along the way, sometimes towards the end. I like them to be completely unexpected as you're reading them, yet somehow wholly inevitable backwards. They need to have a
1: retrospective logic, not a forward logic. But how far do you go in the process before you find out the ending? Or do, do you sometimes get... Are you quite near the end and you still don't know the ending? Uh, it has happened,
0: yes. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. It's the
0: writing of the book tells me how it will end. And the idea of knowing right at the beginning is, is sort of borderline odd. <laughs>
1: um. Well, I don't know what, how I'm going to get there, but you know, it, it's, it's the emotion as much as you know, the narrative rap. Yeah. Do you have this experience that, you know, you come across a really powerful image or a really powerful scene, but you don't know how the characters or how, how you got there. You know, you just, you just, you just, this thing occurs to you and you really want to use it because this image or this this, this moment mm. is so powerful. Mm. Is it cart before the horse? Is it, is it right to put, put the kind of end result there and then work backwards to try and, Justify it being there, you know, because I do sometimes find myself doing that. And I suppose you could claim, you could say that the whole enterprise of writing the novel—if I—if I now I realise it's very odd, you know, to have the ending in my head and to work backwards—but I, I do that in miniature as well. That there is some scene that I am haunted by, you know, some—it might just be an image, or sometimes it's it's a, it's some exchange and. Um, I actually try and figure out what steps can I you know, devise to lead us up to this, to, to just kind of warrant this moment. You never get this? You, you, you always go in a... Um. I feel possessed by the
0: spirit of Sir Ian McKellen, who's just kind of coming into me now and saying, my dear boy, I just call that writing. <laughs> uh, no, all the time. But sort of, This is in no way weird or, or cheating or odd or, or this occasion. This, this is writing for me. I, I, mm-hmm. I do this every time. To use the alphabet thing again, uh, I get to C. Uh, I've got a great idea for F. Uh, what D and E will get me from C to that F? Because it's a killer, and it would be so juicy and satisfying and gorgeous. And it's, a, it's, just got, it's radiating. Uh, it is radioactive with rightness. Mm. Got to get there. But, I mean, I, I want... The DNA to be great, but one of the things they will also do is to be in the service of i, f- I forgot my letters—but in the service of Air mm. Force, whatever it was. Mm-hmm, mm, mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, mm. all the time-ish. So it's not cheating. It's, Probably I, is I mean, this is a weird morphing experience where the world-famous Kazakh girl casual- is <laughs> actually asking me for advice. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, I think I am dreaming, but. Um, mm. No, not cheating at all. It's writing, I think. We should ask that. And, and somebody uh, so else be, has got uh, the, yeah, the microphone. Uh, the other person with the mic. Hello. Hi. Can you wave? Yeah, I hope this is not too personal, but I was just wondering, Like, let's say if you guys have an idea that you want to write about in a novel and you get into like the groove of writing, um, is there anything that you both would do as part of your creative routine or what would you do to take a break to like, refresh your mind from writing? Thank you you're welcome uh, really quick answer I go for a walk really I just go for a walk uh, it always works um, something about the dun, 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 the left right the left right it leaves stuff behind it's a place to think the only thing I do I've got this really bad habit I actually I, I do dialogue aloud so I've got this reputation in this small English village where I live as the village idiot because I'm kind of walking around having... no I do do it it's awful uh, my wife's used
1: to it but uh, so that's it I go for a walk Ish. And you don't think about your writing when you're walking?
0: Uh, I do, but I think about it in new ways and mm-hmm. it unlocks stuff and just a walk in the country. Um. I,
1: find, I find escaping into music is quite good because it, you know, it's, a non-verbal, it's a non-verbal world. Um, so I, I, I do find that, that recharges things. Cause I find if I sit down and you know, w- watch a movie or something, I'm, I'm still thinking like a writer. I'm thinking, oh, you know, that, that's mm. a bit... You know that that narrative thing doesn't work, or you know that's bound to be a false, false enemy situation. That's not really an enemy. That's going to turn out to be a big friend. I, I'm kind of trying to do that all the time, so it's not a rest at all. So, um, but I find if I can escape into um, into music, you know, it, I'm absorbed enough in that non-verbal world. I mean, you're a big music person, but you don't use it to to um. re- recharge your batteries. Um,
0: I use it to when you're get writing. going when I mm. start
1: a writing session. Mm. I, I, I kind of
0: want something on, something in a lang- something either instrumental or in a language I have no knowledge of. Mm. Uh, I find Brian Eno brilliant writing music. It's it, it, it sort of, especially his ambient stuff, it, it, it's sort of interesting enough to sort of propel you, but not, not so hook laden that it pulls you out. But you mean you've got somewhere. it on while yeah, you're actually yeah, writing? Yeah, oh, yeah, really? Yeah.
1: Don't you? No, no, never. No, 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 no. Never. Nothing no, no. ever. No, no. But no. I, I am a musician. You have to. Uh, not I'm a very group. bad musician, but I, I mean. Uh, so he I, says. I, no, no. I, uh, I, I'm a bad. I'm, but because I, I was taught music from a very early age, it, it is quite distracting. You know, I, I can't just have it on in the background. I start thinking in this other language. But I, I, it's like someone speaking, so I can't. Even if it's instrumental, right? You know, right, yeah, yeah. right. So you're thinking about notes and sequences and chords. Yeah, I think about? I think. Oh, oh, look, you know, we're we're in a Dorian mode there. <laughs> I can't really have it just. Maybe it's my it. ignorance that facilitates the fact that. No, it's no I'm not. Hard. I'm not suggesting uh. <laughs> it is, but I'm surprised that you actually can work with anything actually going on like that. Oh yeah, always. What happens if there's lyrics? Is that?
0: Is that... Uh, it's never music with lyrics in. Okay. Um, mm unless it's a language I have no knowledge of. It's great folk Mongolian disc I, 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 I have quite often.
1: But all the time? You've got music going all the time? No, um, uh, after the album
0: or the disc is over, hmm. if the writing's going well, then I forget to replenish it. But it's sort of like, it's like our tea. I, kind of, I need a teapot with hmm. the tea of the day that kind of suits the day I'm on and the weather and environmental factors, etc., etc you talked a lot about wanting to be very plausible in your writing and not choosing bosnia for your setting in your last book do you think as you become a global name and your books become a global phenomenon it makes it more more difficult to be authentic and creative i'm so glad that one's yours and not mine <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's kind of what I was asking you in a sly way before. You know, when I said, have you got... When we were discussing this earlier, I was saying, are you as fearless as you were you know, 15 years ago? You know, I don't know if this feeling that a lot of people are going to read you, not, not just numerically, but people from all kinds of cultures will look at you. And indeed, sometimes you know, when, when we're just projecting into some culture that we think is exotic the people of that culture would actually look, look at it I mean, this idea that you've got a wide audience can can put the frightness on and I do try and resist that your second novel is narrated by a Japanese young Japanese boy and I thought at the time that was a very brave thing for, for an Englishman to do once again another example of this fearlessness and not only that, you just take on the Japanese vernacular. Would you have the courage to do the equivalent now? I mean... Firstly, neatly deflected. Uh, <laughs> secondly... Well, well in um, answer, it's, it's, it's yes. I, I've got yeah. more inhibited as I've got older, definitely. And, and more, you know, com, inverted commas, famous. You know, I've got, I got more and more cowardly. Uh, what about you? Uh,
0: The Buried Giant wasn't a cowardly... I mean, it wasn't a book written by not with one eye on what the New York Times was saying about it at all. However, sure. Um, Yes, somewhat. With Number Nine Dream, I simply imagined I was my own translator, translating it into Japanese. What would this kid be saying
1: if he was British and not Japanese? It seemed like a really neat, easy solution at the time. I follow the whole thing about, you know... Western people doing Japanese characters quite carefully for good, good reason. You know. uh, I don't think I've ever seen someone do that. You know, actually go right into the to use kind of English vernacular so freely to actually represent the Japanese language. You know, we, we, we understand that this is a Japanese language underneath this English but it's, it's, it's not that kind of subtitles English that say I, I used in my early books. I mean, it's a full-blown, kind of really characterised and very varied um, vernacular. People tend to to use a m- much more kind of stately, formal kind of language, don't they? They do, especially mm. for Japanese,
0: mm. and, and there's times in Jacob de Zuc where I did do that. However, this may actually not come from culture or name or or... or Worries about how it would be seen or how it could be translated. It might just be. I'm a bit of a first person junkie. As generally you are. Worse, I'm a sort of first person present tense junkie. And you don't have subtitles when you are in your head. You don't have subtitles really in the present tense. It takes time to go away, have a think, and you can only have subtitles in the past tense. So. Just at the time, I was simply going on what instinctively felt and what instinctively felt right. You can't not be aware that people will be translating this, and kind of—it's it, not so much you change the language, but say if I have a joke, I wouldn't have a termite walked into a bar and said, "Where is the bartender?" Uh, I would have, because that's dependent on language. Uh, I instead <laughs> would have a skeleton walked into a bar and says, "I'll have a pint and a mop, please." Because that, that works in any language, uh, yeah. except yeah, English, yeah, no, no, by just, the No, no, no actually, um, I see what uh, you So, <laughs> I kind of think <clears throat> that much, but we've gone some <clears throat> uh, distance from the question here. But, <clears throat> um,
1: no, 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 no that, that, I find that really interesting, because I had to face that whole question about, you know, what do you do when the readers are supposed to understand that behind the English that is being used, there is another language? You know, everybody is speaking in another language. How do you represent or hint at, you know, a, a, a second language behind the language that you're using. And, uh, and uh, as I said, I've never seen it um, dunk so, um, uh, well, recklessly, or, or, but, I mean, but, but so successfully as you did. One of the things that's emerged, which I didn't expect to emerge from this com- conversation, is that in a small kind of way, fear and, and courage um, seem to be issues um, in writing. Sometimes you've got to be quite daring the calculated risk, you sort of
0: decide where, in qualified terms, courage is going to be turning into hubris and get as close as you can to that line but stop and there work out what it is that's so difficult about this, which is often what attracted you to it, but in the act of working out what the difficulties and the issues and the challenges are, mm. just by articulating them, if only to yourself or on a piece of paper, the keys and the solutions are often in your district, in your descriptions of, of the problem in hand, mm. a bit of a theoretical place to stop. We can kind only of to stop on a great a killer we, line or a joke. We, a we, we, we better end. go. <laughs> 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 we're we get, better go. That's the we're going uh, to get in trouble. So we should, we should say
1: thank you to everybody. Most uh, yes, indeed. Uh, thank uh, you. Thank you very much. Thank time. you very much indeed.